So, Greg, in the time between the end of season one of The Eater Upsell and the beginning of season two, a really huge thing happened in your life. That is true. I got into the show Game of Thrones. You did. But there's another thing, which is that you have become a father. That is also very true. You're listening to The Eater Upsell, the podcast where Greg Morbido, who's the guy sitting across from me, and Helen Rosner, the person who's sitting across from me, talk to a really cool person in the food world, like, for example, Carla Hall, who we'll be talking to in like three to six minutes. Okay, so before we talk to Carla Hall, you want to talk about the kid? So your dad, you and your wife have a beautiful bouncing baby boy. And, you know, one of the things that we frequently talk about in our life as food people is the interplay of children and restaurants. And I think there are like chefs and restaurateurs and servers who have really, really strong feelings about families with babies. Oh, yeah, totally. You know, I was one of those diners who like six years ago, I would always get like really annoyed if I saw a kid in like the cool restaurant that I was at that was like screaming and pounding their fists at the table being like, well, you know, way for them to ruin this, whatever. Like I'm paying $34 for this plate of Bucatini. How dare that child make noise? Yeah. Or just like, well, this place, what, you know, they're interrupting the the cinema of this, whatever. Um, And now I, you know, I'm, I'm totally guilty. I'm on the other side of things and it's like a whole new world dining out with a kid. I mean, I actually feel like terrible for having those sort of opinions like six years ago. You're ashamed of who you used to be. Uh, yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. So do you bring your, your son with you whenever you go out? We try to a lot. Yeah. And some places are really cool with it. Uh, bizarrely, um, kind of like bars are kind of cool. I know that sounds like being an irresponsible parent, but there's something really nice about you know, bringing the stroller into a bar at like three in the afternoon. You know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the extraordinary Reese Witherspoon vehicle, Sweet Home Alabama, but one of the indelible lines from that film is when she judgmentally says to one of her high school friends who is holding a baby in a bar, you have a baby in a bar. And it's it's like a big laugh line because you don't want to put, I mean, the movie is absolutely cinematically magical. Like it's spectacular, but like why would you bring a baby into a bar? Like, it's so obviously dumb that it's a joke in a movie. And yet. Well, I can explain why you bring a baby into a bar. Tell it, me. It's because, you know, if you're a young parent or any kind of parent, probably, you've likely been up since four in the morning, you know, and, uh, you know, something like three in the afternoon or four in the afternoon is pretty much going to be the end of your day. You're getting to that point. Your kid's about to go to sleep. You are like completely tired and exhausted and you want a little you want to break from the house. You want to break from being at home with an adorable, but also a very kind of stressful, high maintenance, you know, baby. individual. Individual. So you bring the stressful, high maintenance individual with you to the bar. Because likely you can't get someone to watch that, that, that individual. So what do you order for the baby? Nothing. Um, they just sit there and dig it. Actually, my son loves loud, kind of dark, dank environments. He's so cool. I just, I think it reminds him of the womb or something, you know? I mean, obviously you can only have a drink or two. You don't want to be, you know. You don't get shit faced with your baby. No, that's a different, that's a a totally different experience. I love this idea though, that like the closest thing we have to the experience of being in the womb is like a horrible, crowded, damp bar. Yeah. I mean, I guess it makes sense, right? Like it's dark and it's damp and like there's sort of like pulsing noises and you are not really sure which way is which direction and you're just sort of like floating and... Oh, yeah. My my son immediately passes out when he goes into, you know, uh, 
a kind of little drink den like that. I'm sure a lot of people immediately pass out in yeah, certain types of bars. That's true. But uh, yeah, no, it's a whole different thing. I mean, there was actually... Oh, is it sad? It's not sad, but the the restaurant where I had my first date with my wife, uh, now we actually we tried to go there over the weekend and we can't go there because it's like this little small place where like it's impossible to have a stroller in there. You I mean, know? that is a little sad. We actually tried to like bring the kid with us and it just straight up didn't work. Like they wouldn't let you or like it physically was impossible no, to they bring a were, stroller? They were really cool about it. Like they're like, let's try it. Let's check it out. And then we were like, this is not going to work. This is just straight up, you know, our stroller's too big or like we could make it work, but we nobody would be comfortable. And like, we don't want you, we don't want the servers to have to like, you know, dance around this. Like we're like, this is just so much easier if we just go somewhere with like a lot of space between the tables and, you know, maybe somewhere that's not quite as kind of boxy and, and, you know, kind of claustrophobic, like a lot of cool restaurants and especially in New York city are, I, you know, I do live in a neighborhood where there are a lot of young parents and there is this one very cool bar that's very loud and dark. And it's sort of situated where, and there is this bar and at the end of it, there's a kitchen and there's a little alcove in the back. And so that's always our, our idea is to go to this place that's somewhat out of the way. Cause like, I know, I know some people are annoyed when they see a baby, when they're trying to get their drink on and maybe they're on a date. It's like a, not a sexy thing to see like a, a young family when you're the opposite of what you want to see when you're on a first date with someone. Yeah. It's like a reminder of. Yeah, exactly. And you know, sex is for things other than or, sex. Right. <laughs> and that, yep, there's the end game right there. If you're a heterosexual couple. note before our conversation with Carla Hall, her Brooklyn restaurant's actually temporarily closed, but it's going to reopen soon. Oh, and while we're on notes, one more note. If you like the Eater Upsell, we would love it if you would rate it on iTunes and even write a review. Okay, here is our conversation with the amazing Carla Hall. And it takes me 45 minutes now to get to the restaurant because people are stopping. And when is the place going to open? And when is it opening? We looked in. When is when is it opening? I'm like, oh, my God. Okay, so I'm not walking now <laughs> from the subway to the restaurant. But but I, but I they care, you know? So um, it's exciting. Yeah, the most exciting restaurant in the world is, like, the one around the corner from your apartment that hasn't opened yet, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> But they're all like, oh, we're so excited. Are you going to have a place for our strollers? Like, no, we're not. Oh. It's small. <laughs> That's the curse of Brooklyn. It's like the inevitable stroller parking lot. Yeah, well, this might be a good time to introduce our guest, <laughs> Carla Hall. Welcome to the Eater Upsell Studios, Carla. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's super exciting to have you. Um, Carla, you're the one of the many hosts of The Chew on ABC. How many of you guys are there now? They're like five. 11? Okay. Oh, they're 11. Oh, my God. Sometimes they're 11, actually, on our 1,000 episode they were like i think uh 40 no hold up uh, a thousand episodes a, a thousand episodes can you believe it i remember when the chew was announced like a lot 2011 it seems right? very long ago yeah. in my yeah. mind yeah but a thousand episodes we wow. celebrated 1000 episodes yesterday it's been five years so we're in our fifth season and it's crazy and and i think all so it's michael simon clinton kelly daphne oz and mario Batali and myself and um we we became really fast friends and i think that's the secret to our longevity is that that we are really friends. And yesterday, you know, we're celebrating our 1000th and we come out and, you know, and the audience is only friends and family. And right when we walk out, 
we just got really teary. It was, it was really emotional and I didn't expect it. No, that's, oh, that's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you, in certain type of types of work environments, mm-hmm. you form these incredible bonds, yeah. you know? And I think like we work in journalism, one of the most beleaguered professions <laughs> in the world. And you wind up becoming family with the people you work with. Cause like you're right. fighting the same fight together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I imagine it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Maybe yeah. like less of the threat of constant industry collapse when you're on a TV show, but well, oh, like, no, no, but no, but exactly that yeah. because the shows don't last. I mean, you had the revolution come and go. Um, the fab life is on, but it's going to go. And, um, you know, you had, uh, Katie Couric and, you know, Meredith Vieira and all of these, they're great shows and great hosts, but they don't, you know, TV is really hard and we didn't think we were going to last. And that first frenetic week of the shows, well, oh my God. And you know, like Clinton Kelly tells the story. Okay. He calls his agent. This is not going to last. Can you look for the next thing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the idea of the two is very audacious when it was announced, mm-hmm. like this idea of it's a daily hour long show that's cooking segments, but it's also a talk show. And it right. was like this really interesting zeitgeisty hybrid of right. morning TV and food TV. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, for those of us on the outside, especially like people like Greg and I who chronicle the world of food, like you look at that with a little bit of a raised eyebrow, right? Because right. I think we're always a little skeptical of things outside of food culture, slapping the word food on it mm-hmm. in order to seem cool because mm-hmm. food has become so cool. Right. And so we're like, oh, great. Like they added the word food to a morning show. Right. But then it worked. Right. It worked. It's, and it's really great. about food. Yeah. And, and the whole thing is food, life and fun. And I, and I think the unique thing about the show is that we get to have celebrities on home cooks as well, but we get to have celebrities on and you get to see them cook. You get to see how they are in the kitchen. There's no other show who can put them in this environment really. So you get to see another side of people that you wouldn't normally see. Did you ever watch Martha Stewart's old show? Yeah. Where she was yes. like, I mean, the With Snoop the Dogg episode and like, Oh, I, no, I didn't see that. Oh, my God. There, so she had Snoop on her show, and they made brownies together. What, Snoop? And I think... Shizzle. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I remember that show. That was a good one. Well, that was, like, for me, that was the episode that, like, blew it open, where I was like, oh, man, like, celebrities cooking is yeah. brilliant. Right. It's a brilliant model. Right. This is what I wonder about The Chew. I mean, it seems to have as many moving parts as, like, a late-night show, like The Tonight Show. Yes. And it moves fast. There's always a ton of stuff, and... In the midst of all this cooking, yes. you know, which I know is not easy for Correct. television. So after doing a thousand episodes, is it like a challenge? Is it, is it a, you have to stay really focused on it every day or do you guys get into a groove with it? And it's like, okay, here I am. I'm doing this thing again. You know, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of all of that. And I'll tell you why we come in on my, just to think of interesting things constantly. I mean, think about we, we, in this uh, 1000 shows, there were 327 pasta recipes that Mario did, but 47 of them were macaroni and cheese. Not that Mario did, but that we did right in the 1000 shows. So sometimes we are like, Oh my gosh, how are we going to make it new? What are we going to talk about? You know, and that becomes very challenging. And, and, and also, you know, I do Southern comfort food, baking, Michael does meat, Midwestern, 
Mario does Italian and Clinton does sort of entertaining and Daphne does the, the healthy, you know, side of things. But the thing is, I, I want to be out of that. I don't want to have to do Southern food all the time. I mean, there's, there's a big world out there. And I think this season in particular, we came back and we said, look, let's, let's really teach, you know, cuisines of the world. We are not just these one dimensional people or cooks. So that's been really fun. And, and also, there is power in what we do. And if there are millions of people watching, like on the Food Network, right? They, they don't do fish. And I really think they don't do a lot of fish. And I think that's why people are uncomfortable with fish. For as long as the Food Network has been on, and it, so many amazing shows, but I think we're like, let's do more fish to make people more comfortable. That's awesome. I don't know how to cook fish in my own home. You can make it in the dishwasher. Yeah, you you can put that whole fish in the dishwasher. You, you, <laughs> just, wrap you, it up. you wrap it up in foil, you put it on the yeah. top rack of the dishwasher, you run it on hot. And you have like a perfectly. That'd be great if I had a dishwasher. <laughs> I know those of you in you. New York. <laughs> My dishwasher doesn't even work. I live in New York. Um, you know, there was um, there was a, a story that we ran on Eater a couple of years ago about this organization in Washington D.C. called D.C. Central Kitchen. Yes. And um, our reporter told this very moving account of a speech that you gave at one of the graduation classes, mm -hmm. where you talked about sort of grappling with those categories that the producers may have put you into, and, mm -hmm. and you told this like very, I thought, very candid and very powerful anecdote about feeling angry when Michael Simon was assigned to do a segment with Gladys Knight. Right. And you felt like, you know, that should have been yours. Right. Um, so have you, how has that evolved for you? I think um, it was, it was very, and I, I talk about that story a lot and I talk about my challenges in life because I, I'm very, candid and open about sharing them. And it's because if I share mine, somebody else will learn from my, from, from my challenges. And that one, that one was really hard. And I think, um, it was basically Gladys Knight came on, cooked with Michael. And I mean, it's not like he wanted to cook with Michael. The producers put him with, with Michael and, and they made a smothered chicken dish. So I was like, oh, snap that I, 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 I was, I was like, wait, what? And when I went into her dressing room just to meet her before the show, all of her people were like, oh my God, um, Gladys was so excited to come on the show. She loves you. She watches the show every day and I wasn't cooking with her. And I, and, and Gladys Knight is from my generation and I'm 52. So listening to her, I mean, you know, my heroes from the South. And so I, I was like, wow. And I, and I went, I called the meeting with the producers and some other things had happened prior to that. So that was kind of like the straw. And I, and I believe that frustration is the ability to do work. If you are frustrated enough, you will move somewhere. Right. Okay. So, um, so the, the, the way that I moved, I called a meeting with the producers and I, and I said, look, um, there, there are either two, two things are wrong with this. Either you didn't think about me cooking with her and that's a problem because you didn't think that I would want to cook with her or you didn't have me cook with her because there's a problem with my interviewing and, and I am not up to snuff. And that's, that's your report card because you have not helped me get there. So either way, this is your report card and you're failing. And that this, this was my perspective. And, and I, and I just went on and on and on. And I, and it was at a time when we were, Daphne and I were told that, oh my God, I, I'm probably going to get fired for this. But, <laughs> oh, you know, uh, we'll bleep out the next 10 yeah. seconds or whatever. Uh, no, but it, it was, it, it was this whole thing of, you know, we weren't growing as quickly as the guys. Oh. And, and I was like, wow, but 
you know, it's like you set us up for really great backup singers. And so I was like, you know, when you go to a show and that person is at the center of the stage, do you know who the backup singers are, what they love to do, who their parents are? You don't know them, but they, 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 they basically heightened that person. They back up that person so that they can look good at the center of the stage. And we didn't feel that we were put at the center of the stage. Now, this was probably a year and a half ago. And looking back now, it was my lesson. I had to get to the point where I was frustrated enough to move into my authenticity. And when I look back at those segments, I, I wasn't as good as I could be, but they weren't, I didn't feel like they were helping me get there. So once I got what I call the, the screw-its, but I use another word. We can uh, say it on here. But, oh, okay. You, know. I, I, you have to get the fuck it sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so in that meeting, I said everything that I wanted to say, because I knew that I didn't want to go home, wish I had said something else. And I said, if I get fired, that's okay. But I'm going to go out being me and telling you exactly how I feel. And they looked at me and they were like, okay, all right, here she is. Thank you for showing up. And it was crazy. Were you nervous going into that meeting? Did, were you like, this is, this is a big, I wasn't nervous. I was mad. Yeah. I, I was mad and I, and I, and I remember crying and I didn't care. I didn't care about being that woman who was crying. I mean, and so often people are thinking, I don't want to be, I don't want to be per perceived as this. I didn't care. I had the fuck it. I was like, I'm going to go in. I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel and we'll see where the chips fall. And, and so many people are afraid to do that. But at the end of that, I got to me, I got to who I was and they actually appreciated it. That is, yeah. I mean, I feel like when you cross that, like the fuck it cliff. Yes. It's just everything becomes clear. Yes. You know exactly what's happening. Yes. The world kind of goes into slow motion. Yes. You're like, I know who I am. I know who yes. I want. So how did your fuck experience it. change since then? So um, after that, I I actually started doing more pieces. And, and the thing was, I wasn't good enough because I didn't get to practice. You know, if you're on the bench at a game and, you know, they're like, well, you're not good enough. I'm never going to get good enough because I can't practice. And so they allowed me to practice more. And then, you know, and they're like, well, why are you so good? I said, because I got to practice. Well, <laughs> yeah. When I first read the, the list of, you know, all the participants of the Chew, I was like, Mario Vitale and Michael Simon have been doing this for a decade yeah. at least. Right. You know, Carla and Daphne and Clinton, you know, I Clinton was like, Kelly had been on. So, right. Yeah. But you came out of reality TV, right. which is so different. Night and day. It is so incredibly different. And yes, and to your point, you're right. We had three people who had done television and um, Daphne and I had not. And so we did um, uh, media training. Uh, starting the, I want to say the third season, which was, which was great. And actually the, the one thing that, um, the woman said to me, she said, first of all, media training is about becoming the best you, you can be. And secondly, when you're looking into that camera, I want you to talk to your next employer. I was like, what? And, and honestly, for some people, it would be, you know, you would be cut off at the knees. Like, oh my God, I'm going to get fired. For me, it was like, all right, if I'm talking to my next employee, I'm like, hey, what's up? I'm Carla Hall and you may want to hire me. That's <laughs> brilliant. Yeah. I mean, it's brilliant. Yeah. That's genius advice. That's amazing. Every job's an interview for your next job. Wow. Mm -hmm. 
That's that's, that's, that's a like sage. Very deep. Yeah. This is blowing it's my mind. It's right almost as now. profound as, as getting the buckets <laughs> and having to do something. No, you know? like this is good. This is like you're like career counseling us right now. Let's keep going. Like I have feelings about my mother. Can we talk about that? Yeah, right. Okay, I just saw the meddler last night. <laughs> <laughs> was it good? It was so good. I love Susan yeah, Sarandon. I so. love Susan Sarandon and I love Rose Byrne and J.K. Simmons. I love them all. J.K. Simmons weirdly looks exactly like my actual father. Really? Which is very bizarre. And whenever he's on TV, whenever he's on a commercial, whenever I see him in a movie, it's very difficult for me to separate them out. And I developed deep emotional attachments <laughs> to, which, you know, made, um, what was that movie where he was physically abusive towards the drummer? Oh, oh Whiplash. That was hard Whiplash. for me to watch. Oh, right. Like, of course. Oh, you're no. like, daddy, why are you being so mean? Why are you doing this, daddy? So I first learned about <laughs> who you are, Carla, and what you're all about watching Top Chef. Yeah. And now here we are five years down the road. The Chew is huge. And you're a huge, like, personality on that show and you're doing so much. I mean, do you feel like you're like way more famous than you were five years ago? I mean, I, I, I guess I am from you all's perspective, but for me, I'm the same person. I mean, I, I take the subway. I talk to people. I still take Uber pool. <laughs> you take Uber pool. Yes. Do people in your Uber pool recognize you as a celebrity and freak out? No, you know what I do? And actually I look up there cause their names are on there and I'll get in. I'm like, Oh, Hey Ashley. And they're like, you know me. I'm like, you oh, know, your name is, is actually on my pool. You turn the tables on them. I, I do. <laughs> like, oh my God, are you Ashley? Right. That's exactly what I do. You know, and then they don't want to say anything. <laughs> and then right before they get out of the car, they're like, by the way, I'm a fan. And then they scurry away. That's right. really sweet. No, it's very sweet. I love that. Yeah. Was there a moment where you realized you were famous? I think it was the moment when I had done, actually I had done Top Chef the first season. So season five and I'm in New York. It's really cold. I have a, I have a coat on, I have a scarf up to my neck around my face. My glasses are poking out. I have on a hat and somebody says, Carla, I look at them like, are you kidding me? Can you tell who I am? And it's the glasses and, and my height. And, um, so and I, and I, and also when people say hootie who, and I'm thinking it's a friend, you know, and I'm like, turn around like who, like W H O instead of H O O and <laughs> like, who, who are you? <laughs> like, it's amazing that you have a catchphrase. Yes. I think, I mean, it's catchphrases are less popular than they were in an earlier era, mm -hmm. I think. And yours came about so organically. I remember watching that episode of, of your first season that you were on Top Chef and you're in the grocery store and like there was the. And, you know, then it cuts to you sort of doing the the confessional to the camera and you're explaining that this is the thing you and your husband do. Right. And I was sitting with some friends and we turned to each other and we were like, oh, shit, it's a catchphrase. Like <laughs> it was so exciting to have another catchphrase mm -hmm. in our lives. It's, you know, my husband and I have a lot of them and we 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 crack ourselves up. We don't have to crack other people up. But um, so we do a lot of even when we come home, it's like hootie, who, you know, -doo -doo -doo. And, you know, it's like it goes on. It's so. like the secret languages of couples. Yes. Yeah. No, yes. Which is beautiful and intimate. Mm -hmm. And then like you turned it into this national phenomenon. Yes. Yes. And I respond to it. <laughs> How did you feel watching yourself on Top Chef, you know, for the first time? I mean, it obviously been taped months before it came out. Right. It was, it was weird. It was, um, and I watched with my friends. I watched with my husband. And um, so people would say, Carla, I can't believe you went on television and you were your weird self. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, that's what I do. It, it was, it was really weird. Also, it was hard to watch and I remembered the stress. I think the stress never goes away, even when you're watching and you're, and you know what, what the outcome is, but you're like still watching, like you're in it. You know what I mean? And, and I, and I swear I had post-traumatic stress after the show because I, 
when I came home and I didn't tell my husband anything because they were, it was, um, uh, a gag clause. And so, and those uh, are like a million dollars. Like, yeah, and like, I was like, mm, okay, that's not worth it. I'll, I'll shut up. I don't have a million dollars, you know, <laughs> no biggie. So, uh, I didn't tell him anything. I came, I came home and I went, he was in Michigan and I slept, I must've slept for a week. And if there was any noise in the middle of the night, I'm like, Oh my God, time's up. I, I would have this thing. And I, and I run, I still run through grocery stores, you know? So, um, you know, I, it, it, it affected me greatly. Yes, it did. It's, it's, it's tough. That show is very tough. But you went back for a second season. Oh, girl, after saying no a few times. So what made you decide to do uh, that? You know what, what made me decide to do it? Because I, I did say no. It took, a, it took like three phone calls and I was like, I don't want to do it. Um, that being said, I'm very grateful to the Top Chef uh, franchise, but I, I went back because I hated catering, and I think I think being on the show initially made my life really hard with people coming to because I don't have a restaurant, so anything any jobs that I got I was physically doing it was really hard. It was st my life was still really hard, and you're working, and, and just because you're on television doesn't mean that you're all of a sudden rich and have all of these resources. I, I had none, and it was all on me, and I'm trying to do other things. And they said, well, what if you make it part of your business plan? And I know a lot of people go on the show thinking, what, how far can this get my career? I did not. I, I just went on as a personal challenge. And I said, oh, okay, I'm going to go on and tell people I don't cater. That really was the only reason I went on. I'm like, I'm a recovering caterer. I don't <laughs> want to cater. I'm going to say I don't cater. And then I said, like, hey, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I said, okay, I was making these tiny cookies when we were catering. I said, maybe I'll just focus on those. Okay, I'm going to go on the show. I'm going to tell people I don't cater. And I'm going to make these tiny cookies. And so, and that's what I did. And so for five years, I had this cookie business that I turned into a dessert business. And we just closed that at the end of January, but that's why I did it. To just, I mean, it's, it's, it's a giant commercial that's yes. watched by millions of people. Yes. Was it a different experience for you though? Like you'd been through it before, right. you knew how to play the game. Mm -hmm. How did you approach the second season differently? The second season was really about camp. I think the second season was about Top Chef camp. So all of the first a time that all of us were together, I'm like, oh my gosh, Del Taldi. Oh my God, Richard Blaze. Hey, you know, it's all of these people, you know, Antonia LaFassa. It's all of these people coming together that I had watched. And now we're together and we, it's like a fraternity because we all know what it's like and we're doing these. And they upped the game. I think the producers really upped the game in doing some of the challenges. So it was really fun. And even though it was stressful, going to Montauk and fishing and I'm like, oh, this is so much fun. What's the next challenge? I hope I don't get kicked off, you know, and not because you're embarrassed. Well, you don't want to be the first one to get kicked off. No, nobody wants okay. That. Nobody wants to be the yeah. first one, but after that, it's just fun, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and Tiffany Derry was my roommate and we're close to this very day. She's amazing. She's amazing. And I can't believe how young she is. She's such an old soul. She's, she's incredible. Wow. I find Top Chef, the phenomenon, so endlessly kind of fascinating. And there's things I love about that show and there's things that frustrate me about that show. Mm -hmm. But I just find it, I just feel like it kind of raised everyone's awareness about a lot of things related yep. to the kitchen and yes. food, like on this kind of broad cultural level. And it's Absolutely. produced so many great like restaurants from these yes, chefs. Yes, exactly right. And I think that honestly, when you look at Top Chef, you look at Chopped, you look at, you know, um, all of the, I mean, even the, the next, um, 
Iron Chef, all of these shows, people are watching and these people are leaving these shows and opening their restaurants or people are becoming aware of the restaurants. And it has done a tremendous service to our food culture and the audience who now knows what all of these quote unquote weird things may be. And now they're open to trying them. And the kids, let's talk about the kids. Oh my uh, God. Yeah. The Chef Junior and they're launching Chopped Junior now. Yes. And they're the cutest things in the world. Yes. Like, yes. Undescribably cute. And who knew cute. the kids were so good at cooking? I, I know. Didn't. Well, they grew up. This was the culture that they grew up, you know, watching. And I actually had the um, distinct pleasure of judging Chopped Junior. And it was incredible. And I'm looking at these kids and I'm like, what? It's like they're savants, you know, it's, it's, it's insane. Like their palates and what, what they love to do. And it's, it's pretty incredible. And it's amazing to think that they're, they're going to still grow up, right? Like in 10 or 15 years, some of them might still be in the food world, but uh, the majority of them probably will go on to have lives that are completely unrelated Mm -hmm. to anything in the professional food universe, but they have this deep fluency in cooking and in eating and Mm -hmm. in the value of creativity and craft Mm -hmm. that all that stuff brings to the table. Right. I mean, it's such proof that the crazy cultural phenomenon of food, which I think Greg, you're totally right. Top chef hugely engendered. Like it's not just a flash in the pan. Like this is part of who we are. Absolutely. But I think because of them, you push the boundaries now, even with the farmers and every, everyone every industry that is related, they're going to be there. They're going to demand that their food is better. They're going to demand that you don't have all of these additives in the food. I mean, look at the cereals taking this, um, this dye out. Right, I mean, Lucky Charms are all natural coloring exactly. in their extraordinarily fake marshmallows. <laughs> like the marshmallows are fake, but the color is real. Right. That, you know, well, <laughs> Hey, you can't have it all. When that little kid from 10 years from now, yeah. his kids will not have those fake marshmallows. Right. So, I mean, it's changing food in so many different ways, not just at restaurants. My favorite part is always like the mad dash through Whole Foods or whatever. Oh, and if you think, yeah. If you yeah. think about it, it's kind of this abstract thing. It's like making like shopping this like crazy energetic thing where we're just trying to get the best, whatever. Yes. You know? Yes. Right. Right. And what's available there. Even, even now when I make my shopping list, I put, you know, the coal section. So I have dairy, I have meat. I, I make my lists like the store is, you know, maximum efficiency. Exactly. You know, I'm not going to be ping ponging back from, you know, the center of the aisle to the, to the edge, to the perimeter. No, that's not going to be me. So you've had a catering business. Yes. You had the bakery uh, business at Gansevoort market. You had the Barclays, the short live, well, Mm -hmm. the market short was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, The Barclays center stand. And now gearing up for your restaurant. Now this is your first like official, official restaurant. I'm the chef owner restaurant. Yeah, this is, this is the first restaurant. I mean, and, and a lot of people think that I have, I have, um, another, well, I don't have anything. There is page at the national airport, which has nothing. It was just my name. It has nothing to do with me. They're not my recipes. I mean, not to diss it, but it is not mine. And then there is, um, in DC, there was uh, a deal that I, I was supposed to work helping the chefs, you know, and, um, that's not mine either. So a lot of people think, Oh, you have these restaurants. No. So Carl Hall Southern kitchen, Greg, to your point is my first one. I just wanted to clarify anybody listening. This is my first restaurant and uh, it's exciting. And my partner is Evan Darnell. And even how this came about was kind of crazy. 
How did it come about? So Evan, who has to be, honestly, as I'm looking at him, he has to be Hi, the He's most annoying. The <laughs> he will beat you down. Talk about somebody calling you. It's the, the, like the, the Jewish mom. He's like my Jewish partner who will call and call. And so he kept calling me and we did a couple of pop-ups at David Burke's Burke in the Box. And um, and then he's like, hey, we're going to have a restaurant one day. I'm like, um, no, I, I don't want a restaurant. No, we're going to have a restaurant one day. Um, I'm sorry. Are you hearing me? I sign language, maybe I do not want a, a restaurant. <laughs> and um, so he calls me at what three years ago, he calls me about three years ago around Thanksgiving. And he says, I have this, I want you to see the space. It's a great, it's a great restaurant. I'm like, oh my God, what, what the heck? I, so I said, I'm going to go in person to tell him that I do not want a restaurant. And it was a sandwich shop on the Upper East Side. And but it reminded me of a meet and three in Nashville. Which is where you're from. Which is where I'm from. And I said, oh, wait. And I, and I realized in my head what I didn't want was a fine dining restaurant. So when I saw that and we sat down, I was like, I cannot believe that I will entertain this thought. It was crazy. And I took a month to go back to the gut to, to ask myself if this was, you know, some crazy moment that I'm having out of body experience that I needed to run away from, or if it was something true. And, um, and I kept coming back to it. And I said to my husband, I think I, I, I think I want a restaurant. And so I talked to Mario I talked to Mario Batali and he said, I said, Mario, I'm really thinking about a restaurant. I saw this space and I th I'm thinking about a joint kind of like a meet and three. And it was actually Mario who said, make it really simple. I mean, what, if you had to do one thing, what would it be? And I said, I would probably do Nashville's hot chicken. He said, make that the thing. I mean, have the best hot chicken, the best chicken that you can have. And so we, we started thinking about it. It's like chicken and sides. I mean, that's it. And just make it very just a small focused concept. Man, it is a small, I mean, I've been to the space when oh. in, another, in another life, it's a small restaurant. Small. And a neighborhood restaurant. And a neighborhood restaurant is 943 square feet. And this is, but this is not the Upper East Side space. This is your space Correct. in Brooklyn. Correct. This is a space in Brooklyn. And this is after looking at hundreds of spaces that we finally found this space. So how long ago was it that you had this conversation with Mario where you guys realized Nashville hot chicken is? It was a couple of years ago. And so what's, what's brilliant, I mean, like you've, you've got a, you know, there's, you were picking up on like the vibes of the zeitgeist because now Nashville hot chicken is having this huge moment. Oh my gosh. It is way, it was, it was way before. It was a secret back then. It was a secret and nobody knew. And so now you have Prince's, I mean, of course, Prince's was there and I knew Prince's and I knew Hattie B's of course, since then Hattie B's has opened their second one. And it's all of this. I'm like, oh my gosh, are we on cutting edge? What? And then, you know, KFC and people are like, oh my God, KFC, what do you think? Oh, that's terrible. I'm like, no, that's good. And let me tell you why they have millions of dollars to spend in marketing. So they're going to tell people what hot chicken is. And I am going to benefit from that. That's brilliant. It's brilliant. You don't have to tell people it is. You just have to make the best version. And that's exactly right. They do all your marketing so, yeah. for you. Like any sort of food item, there can be a million different iterations of it. And I think that's definitely true, especially with fried chicken, especially in New York. Right. There's like, you know, people do all sorts of different versions. What is like, what is your, what is your hot chicken? So our hot chicken is, um, it's brined. We're doing a wet brine and, and we're also in the middle of, of some R&D. Do we wet brine? We don't have a lot of space, so it'd be better if we could do uh, a dry rub. Um, but that's more expensive. And, you know, so, so all of those things. And we, so we brine it. 
and then we air dry it and then we do a flour coating and we fry it. We don't do buttermilk. We don't do a double coating. Well, we do a double, double coating of flour, a dredge. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's tasty. The, I think the secret to really good chicken is for the one, a really good chicken, mm -hmm. first off. Um, so a really good um, hormone antibiotic free chicken. And, um, and then to just have really good seasoning. To, yeah. to season. So without the spice, it's still good chicken. So right. you don't have to get the hot oil for are it to be Are you going to have a mild version for the people who are spice averse? Yes, absolutely. So we have hoot and honey. We have hootie hot. Hoot and we honey. <laughs> yes. I'm sensing a theme. <laughs> yes. Boom shakalaka is the hottest one. Of course. I can't do boom shakalaka, you know. Yeah, no, that's great. Though. Yeah. So we have um, the sweet heat and then four degrees of heat. Because even at Prince's in Nashville, which I think by pretty much every account is the icon of, of yes. hot chicken and mm -hmm. and claims to have invented it, which I'm inclined to believe, though a I'm lot inclined of people to believe that. dispute it. Well, whatever. But their mild is still <laughs> right. excruciating if right. you are tender of palate. Yeah, their mild is hot. And then honestly, as um, a northerner, I really want to say a white person, they won't sell you the hot one. <laughs> They're like, no, you don't know anything about that. I'm like, I've heard stories about, yeah, I've heard stories about white people <laughs> I guess like, let's I, call it what it is. I mean, seriously, right? No, just like give me the hottest one and then being like, ah, oh, they, they wouldn't or like they did, but it was like too much. I feel like there's that whole kind of white dude phenomenon where they're just obsessed with spice. Like, yeah. like heat is really cool among a certain subsection of straight white dudes who maybe need more hobbies. And right. like, and, and so it's, it's just, it's like a, it's like a test of brutality, right? It's like, yes. how much can I punish my body mm -hmm. with no experience of pleasure or satiation at all? Right. And so this idea of like the chicken's so hot, they won't sell it to white people is so alluring to them. Right. Exactly. I'm going to be the white guy who goes up there and yeah. gets the hot chicken. Yeah. <laughs> no, dude, you got to play the right game. Like, yeah. But, yeah. but you know, in, in New York where, um, particularly I think at, you know, the, the, the face of, of dining, I think at, in all major cities and probably across the country, but in New York in particular, even though it's evolving and it's a much more, it's a very liberal community. I think yeah. the audience is still mostly white people. Like if you're going to go to a high profile restaurant, especially from someone like you, who's you know a celebrity in the food world, it's going to be those stroller pushing Brooklyn white folks who want to eat mild chicken. Yeah. Well, I, I'm hoping that, um, the fact that our average price is $16 and you know, you can, you can, and you can even go lower than that. If you just want a piece of chicken. I'm really hoping that what, what I'm all about is the people in Brooklyn, but also the people who know the soul food and Southern food who are going to come and feel like, Oh, Hey, I can go and get really good collard greens. And, you know, I don't have to wait until the holidays, you know, to have my collard greens and mac and cheese for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And it's, it's a cultural thing. And, and, and for me, it's a love letter to not only Nashville, but my two grandmothers, Freddie Mae and Thelma. And it's about really, unapologetically doing this food and saying, I'm okay being black and doing soul food. And, and I think there was a little bit of food shaming, you know, to be honest with black people saying, especially if you go to culinary school, if you're in the food world saying, you know, I don't want to do that. I'm above that. I can do French food. Don't pigeonhole me into this food. And I, I want to say to, to all of the, the blacks out there, Hey, we, this is one of our contributions to um, this country. And this food is definitely a part of our fabric and we should be very proud of it. And, and 
you know, and yes, we have to make it a little healthier because we have a very different lifestyle now. But um, that, that's really part of the impetus for the food that I'm doing. That's really powerful. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a powerful statement and it's also very powerful that you're doing that. Like the, the food world for a very long time, and I'm, I'm happy that the conversation is starting to happen, but the food world has had a really difficult time with representation, mm-hmm. especially of people of color. Right. Like it's starting to become more of an egalitarian space gender-wise. Right. And it's starting to become more inclusive of, you know, queer people. And it's, you know, no one I think is going to come right out and be racist, but like the fact remains that there are very few chefs of color who have the kind of profile that you have. Yeah. And I, and I think that a lot of times when I can say, I love being black, I love black people. And that doesn't make me a racist, you know? And I think all groups, uh, even, even, um, when I say, yes, this, this food isn't for black people, but I can be very proud to do it and have black people come and eat it. And I think a lot of times you, you, you look at soul food and Southern food and there's a difference mm-hmm. there, there is a difference. And, and I think I, I'm looking at so many people outside of the community do this food and be elevated for it. I'm like, wait, wait, wait I'm from Nashville. I'm, I'm black. Why can't I do my food, you know, and, and not set, go and research it and come back and do this food. Right. And, and I think also even in, in doing my cookbooks, it's, it's very interesting. And, and so I'm working on my third cookbook. So I have, um, Cooking with Love and Carla's Comfort Foods. And so I'm working on the third one. And, and, and this one is about really the, 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 the food from Africa and being very proud of it, but also looking at the everyday foods and not the celebration foods, a lot of what I'm actually serving at the restaurant. But, and I, I talked to my publisher and she was like, well, it can't just be for black people. And I'm like, wait a minute, um, if I'm sharing my experience, it doesn't mean that it's just for black people. But when you see a cookbook that's Israeli or Indian or, or Chinese or Thai, do you say, what about the white people? Why, you know, are they going to be racist? Why you can't, you can't focus on them, but you only say it with black people because I think there's a very interesting relationship in this country with blacks and whites. And we have to be able to say, look, honey, you can, you can love and enjoy your culture as a black person. You can love and enjoy it as a white person, but I don't, I shouldn't feel guilty for raising my culture up because you feel uncomfortable with our race relations. Yeah. I mean, yes. <laughs> I think that's I mean, a, a really correct take. Absolutely. And and who, you know, who wouldn't want to all sorts of people would want to cook your recipes. Right. And exactly. that's the thing is the food is freaking great. Right. And the stories are honest. And the stories are also true and important. Right. And I think that you know, you're right. I mean, America as a country, like white America has a very fraught relationship with black America because there's so much guilt and anger and these, you know, feelings of wanting to separate yourself from the past of the country, mm-hmm. ignoring the fact that a lot of it is still the present of the country. Right. Um, and I can't think of another cuisine that in the way that soul food is Southern food cooked by by black people and Southern food is Southern food cooked by white people right. that has that divide. You know, we don't have a word for like when a white guy makes Thai food or a white guy makes tacos. Right. It's right. just Mexican food or Thai food. Right. But when it comes to black Americans, they get si- you get siloed into a, a position that allows white people to step away. Right. And that's fucked up. Yeah. But I think the thing is, first of all, I think in this country, we need to travel more within this country to get to know each other. Um, 
And, and I think we're so busy sometimes when we have the resources, we go to another country, but our, this country is huge, you know, and, and in middle America, you know, maybe a lot of blacks need to travel there. So it's like, Hey, Hey, what's up? You know, get to know me as the person, not the, not the, the caricature on television or the role that was written, maybe not by a black person, but but I, I'm excited to to continue the conversation and to share, you know, my roots with everyone and, and and also for blacks to be proud of this food. And, you know, yeah, you can. And even even watermelon. Can we talk about watermelon? Like, oh, I don't want you know, I don't want to eat watermelon as a black person. Be pigeonholed. It is an emancipation food. It's a celebration food. Those red foods. So you don't have to be, you know, embarrassed. You, it's, it's like, yay, I'm free. I'm eating this. You, you know? shouldn't have to change how you behave. The people who are racistly judging you should right. have to change how they think. Right. Right. Yeah. That's really powerful. That's I'm really excited about this. Thank and you. it's all going to have really good fried chicken. Yes, and good fried chicken. <laughs> which, yes. which, by the way, I will not let you have every day. We will do a broasted chicken. If, if you come in there every day, Greg, and you want fried chicken every day, I'm like, dude, you've already had it twice this week. Have some vegetables. I dig it. <laughs> well, that's the thing you were saying about yeah. celebration food, which yeah. I think is the case um, with a lot of um, cultural cuisines that wind up being assimilated into the general American mm -hmm. vernacular. Like the the foods of you know, the Middle East and the foods of India and the foods of China and the foods of Japan that Americans wind up connecting with are very frequently the celebration foods, right. which are not the everyday foods. Correct. And Correct. with Southern food, it's particularly difficult because it's part of America. And you had things like, I was reading something recently about how, you know, KFC just, and, and the whole fried chicken fast food revolution suddenly made fried chicken, which was a once a week thing. Yes. Into yes. an everyday thing. Right. Right. And then everyone got really fat and had high cholesterol. Well, well, that's it. And I think I, I, I've thought a lot about this in, in the last year or so. And I think a part of it is that when you don't have enough money, so the everyday foods, for the most part, you didn't have a lot of money. So you only could eat like rice and like beans. And, and so you just didn't have the resources. But as soon as you start to become more prosperous, then you can pull and you, maybe you would have those celebration foods twice a year. Then you became more prosperous. You could have them once a month. You became more prosperous and to actually show people, Hey, I'm prosperous. I can actually have you over once a week to have these foods. Then it became every day. And I, and I think that in this culture, it's like, you know, I am somebody so I can show you that I am prosperous and this is what I'm going to have every day. I mean, gout being the rich man's disease. Exactly. The disease of kings. Exactly. And, and if you can get it, that means you're a king. Yes. Yes. And so we look at it very differently these days. So, so what I want to do is to look at some of those ancient or those grains that maybe they ate. Because honestly, poor people are probably the healthiest people because the foods are very, um, they're healthy, but they're very simple. And so getting back to those simple foods and, and seeing what they ate in West Africa, like the broken rice and all of these different grains and, and using those and actually creating some everyday foods that maybe people didn't realize were there. And all this is going to be in your upcoming cookbook. Yes. Which is super exciting. When's yes. that coming out? Girl, I haven't written a word. <laughs> no, no, I had the proposal. <laughs> it's going to be a process because I really want it to come from the heart and I really want it to be the right tone. So my, um, the co-author Genevieve Co is working on it with me. She's the best. She is so unbelievable. So, you know, Genevieve. I, yeah, she's amazing. And we've become really good friends and, and we, I wanted to do this one together. And so we're working really hard on getting the right tone and, um, 
so it's it's going to be fun, and it's it's been a fun process just researching and and writing the proposal. So between your three hats that I can count right now, right? So you're opening a restaurant, yes. you're writing a cookbook, you're on a long-running, phenomenally successful television Thousand show. Thousand-episode TV Thousand show. Thousand-episode TV show. Thousand and one now, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and by the time people are listening to this, it's going to be like 1,100. It's going to be 2,000. <laughs> it's multi-thousand episode TV show. If you woke up in the morning and you can pick which one of these you'd spend your day with, <sighs> which one today would you say, that's the one I want to do? Oh my gosh, that's so hard. That's that's so hard. Why would you do that? Because I'm very cruel. You are. <laughs> that's so hard. You know, okay. Um, I'm going to say in this moment, I'm going to say the restaurant. And I tell you why, because I think it encompasses all of those things because you can actually physically come and see me and I can feed you. And feeding people is the way that I nurture people. And and I can talk about my love of the history. So I, I think that the restaurant encompasses all of them. Awesome. So we've actually come to the time in the show that we like to call the lightning rounds. Woo-hoo. Oh my God. Okay. This is not intimidating or maybe it is. I don't know. Um, you, you can choose how to feel. Yeah. Okay. We're just going to ask you some questions. <laughs> I love you. We ask everyone this, all these questions that comes in. So we're just going to ask you some questions. The first thing that comes to your mind, just pop it out. That's so weird because it, it could have nothing to do with what you asked, but oh, go yeah, ahead. Totally. It's just, this is like a, a verbal Rorschach test. Mm-hmm. Okay, so question number one, you're at the airport, you have an hour to kill, and you have 30 bucks in your wallet. What's your airport advice? Oh, um, I, 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 I'm, I'm, oh. <laughs> I'm literally in the airport. Um, I'm probably going to, it depends on which airport too, because if I'm in Chicago, I'm going to go for Rick Bayless's. I'm going to, for the oh, Torta. Tortoise Frontera. What? Oh my that God. That place is incredible. So We're going to high five behind the mic. That was a I, terrible high five. Honestly, I have 30 bucks. I usually go on my phone and I look for the best restaurant in that airport and I find it. That's what I do every single time. Next question. You're on a road trip by yourself in a convertible. On the open road, oh, yes. blasting music, oh singing gosh. along, yes. what's playing? Rick James. Yeah! Mm. <laughs> that also was a little share. Okay, yeah, it was. <laughs> it was. <laughs> but I felt Super like- freak! Super freak! <laughs> She's super freaking. Perfect. Okay, so you're going to the most perfect bar. It's the bar in heaven, and you go up there, and the bartender already knows what your favorite drink is. And here she pours it. What's that drink? Um, I don't drink alcohol. So I always go for something with ginger and citrus and a little bit fruity. That's very cool. That's a good answer. How do bars, do you, do you sort of judge bars by how well they deal with that? Like I do. Non-alcoholic I, order. I absolutely judge you if you can do a mocktail well. And I usually, and, and if they give me attitude about it. So I, I look at the the cocktail list and I and I say, okay, well, I want that. You know, and I and I change whatever the cocktail is to a, a a mocktail. And if they give me grief, I want to be able to run up a tab. That in, in my head, I I never really drank, and I know friends go and they run up a tab. I always wanted to run up a tab for my <laughs> Just mocktails. Like on your mocktails. I know, yeah. That woman had thirty seven apple juices. <laughs> something interesting and something that's not too sweet. And it's surprising. A lot of restaurants just fall flat if you ask them for something like that. They totally don't know how to deal with it. Um, If you were not a multiple hat wearing culinary personality, what would you be doing with your life? I I love arts and crafts. So I think I would be doing something like that. I I recently went to BuzzFeed and the creativity just jumped on me. I I would love to do something like that, you know, either in like marketing, because that's how I, I think. Um, when you get home at the end of a long day and you have to make dinner, what do you make? An omelet. 
Omelet with salad. That's a perfect meal. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, those are all the questions we have, right? Unless there's anything you want to ask us. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me. <laughs> hey, Carla, this has been so awesome chatting with you. We're super excited for your restaurant. Thank you so much. And I hope you guys come and come soon. Let us make mistakes when we open our doors so that Got we it. can get it right. Absolutely. Really looking forward to it. Carla Hall, thanks for coming by the Eater Up South. Thank you so much. If there's anything that you want me and Greg to talk about on the Eater Upsell, anything you want us to ask our guests or anything that you want us to weigh in on about your personal life, whether it's food related or not, drop us a line at upsell at eater.com. That's U-P-S-E-L-L. The Eater Upsell is recorded in Fox Media's exquisitely beautiful Midtown Manhattan studios. Your hosts are Greg Morvito and me, Helen Rosner. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. Our producers are Patrick Bulger and Maureen Giannone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our studio team is Miles Yule and Alex Ulreich. And of course, the most important person involved in the creation of all of this is you. Yes, you. Thank you, beautiful listener, for being who you are.